Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. All right, welcome everybody to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where blink once if you think Alex Caruso is the GOAT, blink twice if you think Austin Reeves is the go test. and blink four times if you just think Westbrook shouldn't be dominating the ball in 98% of the Lakers' possessions under five minutes, even without LeBron. Now, you obviously can't see, but judging by Tommy's blinks, let's just say Austin Reeves needs to be handling the ball in crunch time. I'm your host, Jonathan Hernandez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tommy Alexander. Tommy, please explain your blinks. I'll blink seven times, Jonathan. Thanks for asking. You blinked seven times. What does that mean if you blink seven times? All of the above. Ooh, all of the above. Some of that contradicts each other, but you know, let's go with it. (laughs) Hey, Tommy, so we went to the game uh, versus Charlotte on Monday and I feel like that game was a microcosm of this Lakers season and thus far this Lakers identity. Granted, the team has not been healthy and that's an understatement. But in terms of a tale of two cities, or I guess a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde team, very bipolar, we got everything. We got stretches where it was the most exciting, most dynamic Lakers showtime type play that we've seen in a long time. And then we've got we got long stretches, and sadly, it was during some of the most crucial parts of the, the game, late, where it was just some of the dumbest, lowest basketball IQ type play we've seen, including fr- from up top with regards to coach personnel deployment decisions. We were just like, this does not make any intuitive sense whatsoever. So let's just quickly talk about, okay, Actually, I know I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Before we get into the Staples Center talk and then the crazy lit Charlotte game that we experienced, uh, why don't we quickly talk about what's hot in Lakers Nation? We rarely do this, but the biggest thing that's happening right now is uh, Alex Caruso went on JJ Reddick's podcast. That's why I did that whole blinking intro thing, Blink 182, and pretty much said that, or I guess he didn't pretty much say, pretty much blinked that. The Lakers didn't even offer him a, a two-year, $15 million contract offer. Um, he went to the Lakers, and this is something we already knew. He went back to the Lakers several times, including telling the Lakers, I'm willing to take a pay cut, but for this price, the Lakers chose to move on, ended up signing Kendrick Nunn, re-signing THT, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The rest is history, so we thought. But because Caruso is a fan favorite, understandably so, 
an important piece of the championship run, a lot of Lakers fans are all up in their feelings still about Caruso. And I'm not one to say, hey, don't be upset about this. Like, for sure, I'm not saying that at all. But what I will say is, given the recency bias of seeing Caruso balling out in Chicago, having fun with the Bulls who are exceeding expectations early on, and then seeing him on J.J. Reddick's podcast, I think that is clouding a lot of fans' perception right now. And then they're contrasting it to where the Lakers are at, where we have half of a roster healthy, we're kind of struggling even in our wins, and we haven't even seen the guys who we signed in replacement of Caruso uh, to even soundly make a an appropriate evaluation even though we shouldn't make we shouldn't even be making evaluations on whether letting go Caruso was the right or wrong move. I think we can all say, you know, look, process-wise, I think the Lake the Lakers could have kept Caruso. They could have technically kept THT and still signed Monk, right? I think the point of argument here is Kendrick Nunn because if Caruso had stayed on, THT had stayed on, Monk was there, it's very arguable whether Kendrick Nunn would have even signed with us in the first place, seeing the glut of guards that we had signed. Uh, so with that said, what are, your, what are your thoughts on people kind of just losing their minds over Caruso? And again, all justified if you're sad that we didn't keep Caruso. I just think, I don't, I don't think it's fair to compare what's happening with Caruso with where we're at right now, given the fact that, again, we have not seen Kendrick Nunn play. We have not seen THT play. And... The Lakers are going to be judged on the Caruso deal based on if they win the championship or not. And we are just 11 games into the season. And for us to be making calls on whether it was the right or wrong move, I think is kind of folly. And it's not my money. It's the Lakers' money that they're spending. And they chose to make that you know actuary valuation point that and maybe it's wrong, maybe it's incorrect, we shall see, right? But they chose to move on from Caruso based off of the replacement options that were on the market. Those replacement options being Kendrick Nunn, and to a smaller extent, THT, because again, it's much easier, even though we know that THT and Caruso can, could have been signed together without any restrictions, Lakers are dealing with luxury cap issues, but also, e- even outside of that, it's much easier to re-sign THT, and again, THT had to agree to the deal, It's a lot easier to re-sign THT if you can tell him, hey, Alex Caruso's gone and you're going to be taking up a lot of his responsibilities. So that's what happened, right? The Lakers pivoted. They said, no, it's a little too rich for us to retain Alex Caruso. And we think that we can make up that difference by signing a guy like Kendrick Nunn, who arguably has higher upside, and then re-signing THT with, with much less stress in terms of negotiation. So they chose to make that decision. That's their decision. Whether we like it or not, that's what happened. And we're only 11 games into the season. We will not know the extent of whether they were actually right or wrong based off of whether the Lakers win the championship or not. Right now, it's not looking so good. But again, we're 11 games into the season. So quickly, I've gone on rambling long enough. Your thoughts on Caruso? Yeah, I just think it's like completely pointless to speculate. I mean, the, I think the big summary of what you just said, uh, and maybe stated slightly differently, is Caruso compared to you know nothing is you know you'd rather have Caruso, right? <laughs> and, and so the point <laughs> here is like it's an easy argument to make when you're comparing him against guys who haven't played. Um, if Kendrick Nunn was playing for us, averaging 15 points a game, playing you know at least average, if not slightly better than average defense, giving us some playmaking, giving us some perimeter shooting. 
I think, you know, we were eight and three because, you know, we had all that. Like, I, I don't think people would be talking too much about Alex Caruso. So we went a different direction. It is what it is. And we have not seen the results yet. Um, so it, I don't know. I, I get, like, Caruso is a fan favorite. I love Caruso. I'm glad he's doing pretty well in Chicago. Uh, I haven't actually looked at his stats really this year, but I know he puts up Obviously, the defensive numbers are continuing to be insane, and he's finally getting appreciated for who we, you know, like, we already knew he was this guy, but he's finally getting, like, the true respect now because he doesn't play on the Lakers, he doesn't play with LeBron anymore, so, you know, all good for him, Um, but, you know, when you're thinking long-term about the team, like you said, they're investing in a 20-year-old, you know, bigger guard who can play the wing and has questionable shooting of the perimeter shooting ability. And they were kind of already set on that path. And, and so if you're going to make that decision, I, you know, maybe you go other ways instead of giving Caruso a four year, like four year guaranteed $40 million deal. I mean, four years, is a long time to guarantee somebody, you know what I mean? So it, it, I don't even view it as like championship or like win the championship or don't win the championship. That's how it's going to be judged. We Caruso was on the team last year and he didn't help us win a championship. You know what I mean? There are yeah. bigger factors than him. So uh, it is what it is. It's a bummer. We don't have him. Obviously we're not trying to like downplay how good Alex Caruso was for us, but I just, I, I personally don't understand the, uh, the response by some fans. Well, it's recency bias, right? He was just on a podcast and it's bringing up, digging up all the feelings we had when we lost him in free agency, which, you know, makes sense and is understandable. But to your point, even if Alex Caruso was on this team right now, he would not be helping the problems. He would not help solve the problems that we have, which are personnel injury based. You know, if anything, having Alex Caruso here would help our defense. Yes, yes. But it's almost like he'd just be a, a heightened approximation of what we have with Avery Bradley. I'm not trying to downplay him, but that's kind of the reality of it. He wouldn't be fixing a lot of the issues we have with not having, you know, secondary ball handlers and whatnot and helping alleviate the pressure off of Russell Westbrook, et cetera. And so, yeah, that's where I stand. And at the end of the day, yeah, I don't know. We we, we will just, we will just have to see if anything, what the, what the front office did with this, if you want to call it a, a fumble on their end, what they did is they put an easier target on their back with regards to if this goes wrong, Everybody can just say, well, you should assign Caruso, right? And I, I actually don't disagree with that. Irregardless of whether we win the championship or, or not, they could have smoothed out all of the scabs, potential scabs that people could pick at by just signing T, uh, Caruso, right? But they didn't, and so they opened themselves up to that criticism. And so if they don't win the championship, you can bet that that point is going to be one of the top points that people will use against them. And I wouldn't disagree at that point, right? Would you? I would it not. wouldn't be the it wouldn't be like the the major point, but it would I, it would be a topic of conversation amongst many that adds to maybe you should have done this right. So uh, right. just very natural. All right, let's talk about the game that we went to uh, against Charlotte and and Tommy. You went to the very disappointing Oklahoma City game last Thursday, where it was just an utter collapse and debacle at the end. There, Russell Westbrook mis- missing the defensive assignment. Uh, the very bad three-point shot at the end, yada, yada. But in terms of, like, being at the game this season, it is such it is such a different atmosphere. I'm trying not to be generic here, but let's just talk about <laughs> seeing Melo come into the game. I, 
I have. It's been a long time since I've seen a crowd get that amped for one particular player, and it not be. It, it's semi-meme-ish, but not really. And it's not like, I guess you can go back to Kobe's like final tour, his final season, and the hype that he got across the league whenever he'd check in. But with Melo, it's like, there's hype, but we actually need this guy for this game to play well. And he's been playing well. And so the crowd swell for Melo, it's unlike anything that I've heard or seen in recent Lakers years. And it's just... They were literally chanting MVP for this guy. And there was one moment in the fourth quarter. We were building our lead. We were up by 11. Russell Westbrook gets a steal. I think gives it up to Monk. Monk shoots it over to Mello. And you remember the exact moment where Mello just is wide open. He sets his feet on the left wing. And the entire Staples crowd just gets up on its feet. And this is granted like eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. Gets up off its feet. Everybody throws up their three-point hand signs. And Mello drains it. And this is even before Mello even takes a shot, right? We all come yeah. up in unison. He hits the shot, and the whole Staples Center is rocking like it's a finals game. And it's so insane to be part of that. And you contrast that with the response that Westbrook gets, where it's like audible groans anytime he takes like an ill-advised mid-range jump shot. And maybe you were starting to feel some of this brew when you were at the Oklahoma City game when he started making all of those decisions and then compounded with him turning the ball over five times in the fourth quarter when we were at the game versus Charlotte. And I think it's starting to build for Lakers fans, but I think the contrast is pretty stark and interesting. And I'm almost like, did we get this whole thing wrong? Because we've been thinking all this time that Lakers nation is pretty down on Carmelo Anthony, right? And it turns out it might be flipped. They are very, very high on Carmelo Anthony and Russell Westbrook, they are having a lot of questions about, and you can, they make it known audibly that they, that Lakers fans are on the edge with Russell Westbrook and maybe justifiably so, so far, but, but just your thoughts on the Staples Center environment and, and what you've witnessed in the two games that you've been at Staples. And if you want to touch on Mello versus Westbrook, uh, you can touch upon that. Yeah, I think Laker fans are very perceptive about like what's happening on the court, you know what I mean? And they'll cheer for anybody. It doesn't matter who it is as long as that person is is uh giving results, right? And so I think the problem and I think you know you summarized it really well. If you haven't gone to a game this year, I know it's like not the easiest to get t- tickets in LA. Maybe it's a little easier now with the pandemic, I don't know, but you know, if you can get into Staples Center for a game this year, I highly, highly encourage you to do mm-hmm. so because it is really a different experience. Just see, like, you know, obviously last year, last year and a half, really, since March 2020, uh, I guess more than a year and a half, there have been no fans, right? So that's obviously a different dynamic, like, not to be too obvious about it, but like, you know, the having a guy like Mello who... I mean, I, you haven't seen Staples react this uniformly, like get this excited about a guy like this since maybe Kobe. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Like, like you said, when he touches the ball, people start losing their shit. Like he's about to, like the next shot he makes is going to be for eighty three points. You know what I mean? Or like the next, 
yeah, like the, you know, he's about to break break the single season score or like the all time scoring record or whatever. You know, it, it's like cra- every time he touches the ball from the first second he comes in. Frankly, it's like crazy because sometimes he'll grab it in like the mid post and like ISO mellow mode. He's got a guy like pushing him all the way with all his strength <laughs> to the three point line, and Staples Center still wants him to shoot like a. You hear, you hear, yeah, you hear Staples going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like you you see the face of God. You see the face of God anytime Carmelo Anthony launches the ball into the air and you see like the parabola arc go. It's crazy. And it's just like hard not to get sucked into that when you're in the stadium too because everyone is so amped. And it's and it's crazy too because of Russ, right? I think Russ, he's an exciting player. He plays super hard. It's hard to root against him. Obviously, we're not rooting against him as Laker fans. But, I mean, Laker fans, again, are perceptive. And... It's not just that Russ misses some shots uh, or, you know, has a few turnovers. It's just like the nature of some of the mistakes he makes and some of the decisions he makes with the ball are so dramatic. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to become frustrated. You know, like when you see him out there like dribbling tentatively like a, you know, he's afraid to like very clearly afraid to take a jumper. It's like when you watch somebody go out to take the San Manuel like half court shot and it's like, (laughs) (laughs) it's like a 16 year old who looks like they weigh like 95 pounds and they're like, oh my God, this kid is not even going to hit the, (laughs) like he's not even going to come close. You know, it feels like that almost where you feel uncomfortable watching it. Like he clearly feels uncomfortable like taking those shots and so thus it like transfers onto you you know it's like when you see someone behaving awkwardly like you feel awkward yourself so anyway it's like i think it's 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 pretty amusing to see all of that um yeah i mean that's all i have to say on the on the stage no yeah i agree with you it's very palpable and you you experience the game on an entirely different level and i think us as fans especially on Twitter, you forget what an echo chamber Twitter is. And all you think about is like advanced analytics, whatever, like mellow sucks or whatever. And then you go to the game and all of that noise is filtered out. Right. And you're just like, okay, I'm watching this as a fan and I cannot disagree with all of these people next to me. I'm not smarter than any of them on Twitter. We like to put on this, you know, sort of facade that we're smarter than most other people or whatever. We have these crazy hot takes and stats to back them up, whatever. All that gets stripped away when you're at the game and you're just like, holy shit, Melo is hot, give him the ball. You know, you sound like any other sports fan and you are any other sports fan. And you actually strip all that away and what's most intuitive is usually right, if that makes any sense, right? Like what you feel in the game, even though it's heightened, is usually right on the dot. You take away all the net rating and all that stuff out of it, right? Um, But yeah, it was a crazy game. Uh, you, you. I also wanted to touch upon it. How how bad does DeAndre Jordan look in person versus just TV? Oh my God! So I, you know, caveat. So I went to the last two home games. I guess there was a road game in between, but you know, he looked a little bit better in the first quarter of the Hornets game that you and I went to. But against Oklahoma City, dude. Oh my God! I mean, it looks bad on you know when you just watch it on TV. And when you see, like, just how lazy he is in person with some of these, like, you know, single effort moves or just incredibly low basketball IQ, you know, decisions that he makes, it is just so 
painful to watch. And it's also so glaring when they put Dwight Howard in how much better he looks. And yeah, Dwight has experience, you know, he has experience with this coaching staff and with some of the systems and, and, you know, principles, uh, you know, that we use on the defensive side, but some of this goes beyond just principles, right. And learning that. stuff. I mean, Deandre Jordan has been in the NBA for 13, 14 years at this point. He's also like four or three years younger than Dwight Howard. Um, I know he's not in as good a shape or whatever, but we're asking him to play like very limited minutes and do a very specific thing. And the fact that he's this bad at it is like pretty alarming. And the fact that he is by far gives the lowest amount of effort. I mean, Carmelo Anthony is playing much better defense, yeah. like much better defense and, and much better effort. Uh, than DeAndre Jordan. And we're asking Carmelo Anthony, by the way, to like, and the Hornets game, he played 36 minutes. Like we're asking him to play like fairly significant minutes and score a lot for us to have a chance to win some of these games. So, you know, it, it, I don't know. It, it, it's very frustrating. And, and I hope that they figure out a way to move on from this experiment because it's clearly not working out. Yeah. And no crazy athletic, lob highlight or whatever will fix the reality of the spacing he doesn't provide Russell Westbrook with and also just the terrible defense where you know Russell Westbrook's late game mess up against the Oklahoma City Thunder where he absolutely tried to double team Shea Gilgis for no reason and then Lou Dort backdoor cut for an open dunk that's DeAndre Jordan for most of the game (laughs) you know for most of the game it's crazy. Like, you you see him trying to help Anthony Davis, a potential defensive player of the year, and totally leave his man open for the dunk instead. And those are sort of things that I don't know how you fix if this guy has a track record and history of doing that stuff. At some point, you're just like, I think he has a low basketball IQ. Oh, yeah. And the team started the season so poor on the defensive end that, you know, this was on the forefront of everyone's mind. They've had like more practices this year than they had at this point of the season, like way more at this point of the season uh, this year than compared to last year at a comparable point. Right. They they uh, have watched a lot more film together from what it sounds like in these and had like a lot of film sessions in these practices. And if somebody's just like the concern that I have is because DeAndre is like you know has a reputation, has been in the league, he's a veteran, he's had like a pretty good career up until the last couple of years. I guess my concern is like, are people willing to call him out? And because it feels like there's no way that he could have been, you know, he, he's he's being called out on this stuff. If he is yeah. being called out on the stuff, that's just <laughs> embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> because it's like, how have you not fixed it? But anyway, yeah. And I think this is something we're going to have to pin on the front office for now if they don't make a change because they're the ones who brought in DeAndre Jordan knowing that a coach like Vogel would try to fit him into his system, fighting tooth and nail, and this is what we have so far. If you want to listen to a podcast that details more about DeAndre Jordan and why we should try and replace him with some actual realistic replacement options who are traditional centers, check out our last episode, 382, Center for Rants. Shout out to Zoolander, if anybody gets that reference. All right, we'll take it to break. When we return, we'll talk more about this game and some players who stood out to us, but also talk about how we kind of felt like, as we were talking throughout that game in person, that maybe Vogel started to find something with regards to lineups that he was deploying and getting a guy like Wayne Ellington back, helping Malik Monk get back into a groove. And it's this theme of, Maybe it's time for us to truly lean into the offensive end, even if it goes against 
who Frank Vogel is as a coach inherently. So we'll get to that after the break. All right, so we are back. Tommy, I have some very interesting Austin Reeves stats for you. It's not too crazy, but if you actually, you know, dissect it and hone in, it's actually who would have who would have envisioned this, right? So Austin Reeves against Charlotte. Dude, this kid just has crazy balls. He's he's fearless. He's taking that in the fourth quarter with two minutes left. He's taking dudes off the dribble and doing a Kobe spin away fadeaway shot and hitting it. Right? He had that crazy in transition um switching hands layup reverse, reverse layup thing that, that, that got the crowd sick, yeah. like absolutely wild. And even the like the jump stop mid-range jumper he took where he crossed Kelly Oubre over and had Kelly Oubre continuing to go down the line while he stopped on a dime and calmly drained the mid-range jump shot. Like this is stuff that it's it's a veteran move. These are all veteran moves and this dude, an undrafted rookie, is is showing them all. And he's he's unafraid of the moment. Outside of just playing solid defense, you can rely on him to handle the ball. And so an undrafted rookie is playing 21 minutes per game. He actually has ball handling creation responsibilities that he's taken on pretty well. Yeah. He's played 10 games, Tommy. He only has eight turnovers. <laughs> this, is, uh, this, is, this is not a center we're talking about, okay? Like a center would get eight turnovers just by having played in the game for 21 minutes, right? Austin Reeves is actually taking guys off the dribble, playmaking for other guys, playmaking for himself. It's ridiculous. So on top of that, out of all rookies from the 2021-22 class, Reeves is 11th in minutes played at 21 minutes per game, right behind Herb Jones of the Pelicans and Davion Mitchell of the Kings. So on top of that, out of all rookies, Austin Reeves is second in overall net rating, 22nd overall in the league, with an 8.2 net rating right behind the New Orleans Pelicans' Herb Jones, who has an 8.8 net rating, but he's right above Chris Duarte, Bones Highland, Davion Mitchell, and Scotty Barnes. Davion Mitchell and Scotty Barnes are playing a hell of a lot of minutes, and they're balling out right now. So is Chris Duarte. Significant roles. And here's Austin Reeves, an undrafted rookie, with the second overall net rating amongst rookies. Your quick thoughts on Austin Reeves. Uh, Austin Reeves is also the greatest free throw shooter in NBA history because he's shooting 100%. Yeah, from the free throw line, you left that out. Um, I did. Yeah, no, Austin Reeves has been fantastic. Here's the craziest thing, right? You you went off on all that stuff, but Austin Reeves is not even supposed to be playing for us, you know. So this gives you an idea of kind of the depth, you know. Before everybody, I know it's like so easy for because of how we started the season. And I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but we're probably going to get trounced by Miami <laughs> when we play them. So you know, it's like. There's it's it's like really easy to complain about this team and to complain about the roster makeup and and decisions that Rob and others have made, but like he also identified Austin Reeves or you know the front office. I'm not going to say just him. The the scouts, the front office identified Austin Reeves. Not only identified him enough to sign him as a two way because keep in mind he was signed as a two way first right after the draft, but also to be like actually this guy can give us something. Put him on the actual. 15-man roster for a team that is like, you know, has pretty much championship or bus aspirations. That's pretty crazy, right? And, and so it kind of mm-hmm. gives you a sense of like the depth that we have if 
you know, you need some of these younger guys over the course of an A2 game season to soak up minutes, but not only is Austin Reeves, like, I mean, he's playing, he's played in 10 games for us. He's averaging 21 minutes a game in the games he appears in. He is literally supposed to have not played in any games. I mean, he's supposed to be like our 14th guy, pretty much before Rondo. Um, so, you know, the fact that he has kind of just stepped in from, like you mentioned, undrafted to playing in the summer league. And like, yeah, he he looked, he passed the eye test in the summer league, but this dude was not dropping 20 points a game. Or I mean, his stats actually are not that different than they were in the summer league. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like to go from that, but you kind of just got the sense of, okay, this guy is solid. He can give you a little defense, and he's probably not going to make a lot of mistakes. And we said it in the preseason, too. The reason Austin Reeves is interesting, particularly for a team like this, is because he can play defense, and he's not going to make a lot of mistakes. Now, his three-point shooting has regressed a bit from where you know he was in the preseason and where he kind of started the season. He's down to 32%. Um but if he can, you know, hit an occasional open three, play solid defense, and turn it over, like, you know, well under one time per game, um, you can't really ask for much more uh, than that. And I don't know. I've been very impressed with him overall. We have this guy locked in for two years. He's an, you know, easy, easy decision to put him on the roster again next year. So that signing is looking really smart. Um and, and yeah, I've just, I, you can't say enough good things. He plays hard. He is brand new to the league and the team and the city. He's just like, he's performing at a very high level given all of those circumstances. Yeah. And I also don't think it's crazy to th- say that he would be, if Caruso want, was on this team, he's pretty much playing a comparable level to what Caruso would bring. And I'd even argue higher offensive upside. So defensive uh, yeah. lower, but higher offensive upside for sure. So well, and and you know we don't know like Caruso. We're comparing Caruso is like a fourth year NBA player. I mean Caruso's played yeah, yeah. four you know four seasons in the NBA. Like Caruso as a rookie, rookie couldn't even get. Ro- I mean you could blame Luke Walton for this potentially, but couldn't even get rotation minutes on a tanking rebuilding type team, right? Like he was in the G league pretty much the entire season. Even his second year, he was in the G league and barely, I think he had like a stretch of 25 games at the end of the season that he got. And then finally his third year, which was, you know, Vogel's first year, he started to get a more consistent role. Um, but it even took Caruso, who was also like a four year college player, a decent amount of time to get to the point where he is sort of the guy we know him to be right now. You know, now Cruz is like a fifth-year player, right? So Austin Reeves is just he's a he's played 10 games in the NBA, dude. <laughs> like yeah. he's played 10 games in the NBA. He hasn't had and he'll he actually will never have because he's on the actual roster. He's not a two-way player, so he'll he won't really have the chance to play for the G League team and, and get more reps there. He's just getting them live in NBA minutes and he's thriving, he deserves which is them. pretty impressive. Yeah. And he deserves them, yeah. He's doing this in pressure situations. To your point, he never got the ramp up, ramp up time that Caruso did during that, you know, LeBron's first year where he was injured and then he got a couple games towards the end of the season to really feel the game out. Austin Reeves is just going right out there and the team's like, "We need you because we need to win games." And he's a winning player. Like second in rook- in all rookies in net rating, 22nd overall in the league. It's it's nuts, but that also matches up with the eye test. So, all the props to freaking Austin Reeves, HBK. Uh, so to close this episode, Tommy, I'm going to let you take this one and let's talk about how we feel like Vogel should. And I think, you know, 
Vogel takes a little bit of time, but eventually he usually ends up pivoting to the right decision. Yes. I think this one will be a little bit harder for him because it yes. goes against everything <laughs> it goes against about who he is. Yeah. yeah, it goes against his instincts, goes against his nature, whatever. And and it starts with Avery Bradley, right? I think Avery Bradley is a a good manifestation and projection of Vogel himself. And I think he's too reliant on Avery Bradley right now. Yep. And for someone who's a partially guaranteed player who we might need to cut and swap out for somebody, I think Vogel needs to wean himself off of Avery Bradley now. Now, I really like Avery Bradley, love his contributions for a an injury laden team thus far. He's been hitting his threes, he's been, you know, been scrappy, yada yada. But on a team like this, with so many defensive deficiencies and so many injuries, Avery Bradley's best efforts, the Avery Bradley challenge or whatever, it's kind of in vain. <laughs> And so at that point, and this is where we're getting to the, let's start, let's just lean into the offense. Let's lean into the offensive. I think Vogel needs to play Avery Bradley less. Wayne Ellington just entered the fray and we're starting to see him play him more. But we saw in those units where we made those huge runs against Charlotte, it was super electric, super dynamic. Staples Center was rocking. Wayne Ellington and Malik Monk would come in and change the entire dynamic of our team offensively and also help Russell Westbrook out spacing-wise and also help Rondo out because Rondo was the main engine that drove our run in Charlotte. And by the way, just shout out to Rajon Rondo. Like when he goes on his playmaking run or whatever, you can feel tangibly how he takes reins of the game and has the keys to the car and everything he does. And it's almost like, when, when, when playoff Rondo is turned on, even in the midst of a game, he gets super scrappy defensively. He's teleporting all over the place defensively. The lobs that he was throwing to Anthony Davis got the crowd up off their feet as well, and it was just so electric. And then when Russell Westbrook swapped in for Rondo when he got ejected, it kind of still, that momentum kept going because Wayne Ellington was still out there. Malik Monk was still out there. If Vogel took one of the two out, he'd put in Austin Reeves, another guard who could play make on his own. But we can't, continue to do this thing where it's like, oh, Bazemore and Avery Bradley are out there, or Bazemore and Austin Reeves are out there. You can put Austin Reeves in there as the perfect plug-and-play guy, but put another offensive dude next to him, and let's lean into the offense because that's where we get our momentum going. Because again, yes, Avery Bradley shows you an example of like, okay, this is how we want everybody to play who gives effort on defense all the time. But guess what? Avery Bradley's best efforts is not trickling down to the rest of the team, so might as well scrap that plan and go fully run up and down, let's shoot threes, let's try our best to outscore the, the other team. So your thoughts on going offensive? Yeah, it's funny when you were describing that, like Avery Bra- the Avery Bradley setup there, I was thinking like it's it, it's like, you know, when Larry David was writing the show Seinfeld, you know, he always says that George Costanza was like him on the screen, right? And you sort mm-hmm. of feel like when Frank Vogel thinks of his defense, he thinks of Avery Bradley <laughs> like yeah. himself on the <laughs> yep. court. You know, but it, it's... The the big problem I'm having with how Vogel has approached this, right? And I think to your point, there's he usually in, in the time that he has been our coach has ultimately come around, right? And there are a lot of coaches in the NBA who you could point at them and say, "This is who who this guy is. This is what he's going to do, and he'll never change." But Frank Vogel has been known as a defensive minded guy his entire career. And that's fine. And, and you know, 
there were things that happened during our championship last season. You can almost throw it away a little bit because uh, of how things went. But there were things that happened certainly during our championship season where it sort of, you know, you got the sense that, okay, this wasn't working, but Vogel, this is just who he is as a coach. But no, he switched. You know, in the playoffs, we went small. We didn't just play his two-big-guy lineup. He he showed that throughout the season. He showed that he was paying attention to, like, what five-man units were working. He was paying attention to advanced statistics, and he was paying attention to all that stuff. And so I guess the frustrating thing from this season, right, and to your point, Vogel is maybe going to take a little bit longer to recover from this one, is he is so instinctively inclined to favor defense over everything else. When we have LeBron James, Taylor Horton Tucker, Kendrick Nunn, and Trevor Reza back in the lineup, that's crazy that we're missing all four of those guys, by the way. But like when we have those guys back in the lineup, do your defense thing, lean into defense. We know that that's what we need to win a championship. Those principles need to be emphasized. Whatever you got to do at that point, do it. But for the team that we have right now, sans those four guys, um, for the foreseeable future, at least for the next few games in the case of THT and, and LeBron, we need to lean into offense a lot more than what we're, you know, doing. And and he's shown it in bursts, you know what I mean? It's like I've just seen some like insane statistics with Russ, where overall Russ is like a minus 16 net rating in his minutes on the floor with the Lakers, which is insane. I mean, that's objectively horrific for like your superstar player. But when you remove, and then you start looking at the caveats, right? Okay. Remove Dwight, or sorry, remove Deandre and Rondo from those lineups. And he's now a plus five. It takes that big of a jump, right? I would be curious to see what he is when you remove Avery Bradley, you know, from those lineups too. And, And so I, you know, it's, it's funny because this whole season, We've been getting killed in the third quarters. I think in the first quarter with our starting lineup, teams are feeling out games. We have enough talent out there to kind of get by. Like DeAndre maybe doesn't look as bad in the first quarter than he as you know than he does when like teams adjust in the second half, et cetera, et cetera. We have been consistently killed in every single game this year, except for when we were playing AD at the five uh, in the third quarters. And a big part of that is we go back to this Russ, Kent Bazemore, Avery Bradley lineup. And, and, look, and DeAndre I love, Jordan. And DeAndre Jordan. And, and I love Kent Bazemore. I think he's you know doing good things for us. And, and I'm not necessarily saying take him out of there. But when you put Russ against, you know, Kent Bazemore has been struggling overall from three so far this season, partially because of the looks he's getting, because of the lack of spacing. But when you put Russ out there with a guy like that and Avery Bradley what do you expect is going to happen? You know what I mean? I mean, we went, we kind of limped into halftime of the Hornets game, but we still went down, you know, went into it only down one. We came into the third. It's like, so that the thing that is alarming is like, when you see it on TV, it's like annoying to watch and frustrating. When you see it live, (laughs) you feel the energy being sapped out of the building. When these dudes roll out there in the third corner, quarter and loaf around they can't get anything going on offense the other team has adjusted and is coming out of like the second half with a burst and we're going back to the same like horrific like starting lineup that we started with bunch of guys who can't score or do anything now they've adapted to the deandre lob so he's not getting the and like we can't do anything on offense i will say to vogel's credit right and and you kind of saw the turning point in the third quarter of the last game 
he took a timeout. We went down big, like right away, like nine points, ten points in the first minute of the third or five, four minutes of the third quarter. Seven minutes and thirty seconds, he took a timeout, and he pulled all those guys out. He pulled out AB. He pulled out DeAndre. He put in the offensive unit. You know, you mentioned Rondo, like came in later, a little bit later. Those guys are what catalyzed the run for us. Um, mm-hmm. Those guys all had crazy plus minuses. And then you kind of saw it again, though. I, I was talking to, you know, we were talking about this during the game. We had scored 105 points, and, and maybe not super impressive because the Hornets are like one of the worst defenses in the league, but we had scored 105 points with six and a half minutes left to go in the game or so. We were up by 11 points at that point. Free throw line, you know, we commit a foul, guy goes to the free throw line. We then sub in Frank Vogel's like prevent lineup, right? Which is like, you know, when you talk about thinking about prevent defenses in football, like he took out Wayne Ellington and Malik Monk and subbed in uh, Austin Reeves and Avery Bradley. In the last six and a half minutes of the game, we scored like nine or 10 points. I think we scored like 10 points. Okay. Against one of the worst defenses in the league and Charlotte made their run and they tied us. Okay, then we go to overtime. He brings the guys back. He brings Monk and Wayne back in, and we win the game. Okay, and it, it looks a little bit more fluid, and AD has more space in the paint, and and like everything, you know. Despite Russ, like we won in spite of Russ looking like he had no idea what he was doing, and you know, making some kind of boneheaded decisions down the stretch, turning it over a ton. You know, but not turning it over as much as he did in the fourth quarter because he had at least some space on the floor. So you know, it's like. Yeah. You hope that Frank Vogel sees these things that are going to be necessary for this team to win. But I think on the whole, even when the four guys I was talking about come back, LeBron, THT, Ariza, none, this team is still built to be more dynamic offensively than any other team Frank Vogel has coached for us um, and probably has coached in his entire career. So we need to stop a little bit, you know, trying to get this team to fit the KCP Caruso, Kuzma, Avery Bradley style mold that we've had, Wes Matthews that we've had the last few years, because these guys are going to be a lot more balanced, right? Like the, we're not trying to be the number one defensive. We should, or at least, sorry, I don't know what we're trying to do, but we should not be trying to be the number one defensive team and the 20th offensive team with this roster, right? With this roster, we need to be elite, like top of the league, top three, top five offense, and then better than average defense. And, and, you know, maybe top 10 defense, but like focusing so much and honing in so much on like the defensive side of the ball, when you have so many guys who are offensive style players, like there's two sides of the game, right? And I know ultimately defense is going to be what wins us the championship or not, but for purposes of getting through the regular season, which is important for getting seating, for getting guys confidence, for getting guys chemistry, for winning games, like learning how to win games, we really need to be leaning a lot more into offense with this roster. Playing Avery Bradley significant minutes is like doing us no good at this point, in my opinion. Yeah. And to that point, and shout out to Merge at Merge1998. Avery Bradley has a minus 14.7 net rating in 21 minutes a game, by far the worst on the team so far. Obviously, there's a lot of context that goes into that. But again, we shouldn't be leaning on this guy that we just brought into the team like days before the regular season. Um, And lastly, I'll say I feel like Frank Vogel should be approaching the game and his mentality to the game kind of the way that he deploys Carmelo Anthony. 
you know? Lean into the Carmelo Anthony of it all. This guy is not a known defender, but you know he's so crucial offensively to gluing us all together, and because you don't have an offensive system or schematic, uh, schematics of your own, any, not anything advanced or nuanced at least, rely on guys who can do stuff and help them out as best you can by actually playing them. That includes Monk, that includes Wayne Ellington. Um, and you're also freeing it up for Westbrook, like you mentioned. And what we did in the fourth quarter to end that game was just absolutely nonsensical. Outside of the lineups that were out there, the fact that Frank Vogel's play calling or lack thereof with regards to just having Westbrook dominate every single fourth quarter possession and dribble the ball at the top of the key, waiting till the 12-second mark to finally make a move, I was just like, Frank, what are we doing here? Like, can we do? Can we tell Westbrook to give the ball up? Can we put him in other actions? Even though LeBron James is not here, it's not a bad time to also try Russell Westbrook off ball. Just because he's the point guard, just because he's Russell Westbrook, does not mean he has to dominate every single possession. We've yeah. got a guy in Carmelo Anthony who's been hot every single night. And Tommy, the fact that we never gave Melo a touch in that fourth quarter stretch like with five minutes left, to me, that's like... Even though we didn't turn the ball over, not going to Melo is a turnover in and of itself. Given how we, hot well, he was, and we took him. We took him out for a significant stretch because remember when we subbed him out, everybody around us was even saying it like, uh, "I hope we're, I hope we're just taking him out to get some rest to close yeah. the game." You know, and so he, but he was out for a significant stretch, and he was a huge part of our offense leading to that point. And by the time you're right, I mean by the time he came back in, like he didn't even touch the ball hardly. Yeah, and you and he's a guy who's not a strictly catch and shoot three point shooter. You can post him up. You can have him check this out, Tommy. You can give the ball to Carmelo Anthony and have him dribble the ball. Have Anthony Davis come over, set the screen, yeah. and then you can play that two man game. Even if Russell Westbrook's mucking the spacing up, doesn't matter. Guess who can hit tough shots off the dribble? His name's Carmelo Anthony. I'd argue, especially with regards to this early part of the season. He can hit those jump shots way better than Anthony Davis can right now. Oh, my now. God. And, and Yeah, and I mean, we saw this so much with LeBron, too, and AD. But, like, when you run a four or five pick and roll, like, teams don't know how to guard that, like, instinctively, right? These guys are not, like, power forwards and centers are not all the time used to being in those situations with each other. When we ran that, like, one time we ran that, what you just described down the stretch of that Hornets game, I... It resulted in Carmelo Anthony, the top number nine NBA score, you know, score in NBA history, getting a wide open corner of the free throw line jumper. I mean, that's like cash for him. You know what I mean? Yep. You take that shot 10 out of 10 times down the stretch of a close game. Those are the types of shots that are going to win you close games in the playoffs, et cetera. And so when you need the buckets and the fact that you're right, like that we, our offense was like, all right, Russ, take the ball, high screen and roll, like figure it out while everybody's like diving to the rim. Cause they know you're not going to shoot it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's just so crazy that, that we, we don't even try that other stuff. Yeah. So hopefully Frank Vogel adjusts. And on top of that, also leans more into the offense because it's going to help Russell Westbrook out. And hopefully we see different actions, the ball moving around, ball finds energy type stuff, even for a guy like Russell Westbrook. Uh, with that said, we're not sure what's going to happen with the Lakers versus Miami Heat tonight. We just hope that they play with some effort. There is really no excuse. That game against Portland, regardless of how shorthanded they were, the quotes coming out of that game with multiple guys saying, we just need to play harder, is inexcusable. So hopefully a lot of that corrects itself. And I think with that 
that oomph that we get from playing well offensively, hopefully that should help spark us to more competitive runs and also even energize us on, on the defensive end. Hopefully you don't need that, the offense, to energize you. But for right now, given our status and given our shorthandedness, dude, let's just have some fun. Lean into the offensive highlights and see how many combo transition points we can string together, highlight plays we can string together, and hopefully enough of that amounts to, regardless of how many points we're giving up on the other end, hopefully that amounts to a 128 to 125 win at the end of the day, which I think is kind of close to the score of what the Charlotte game was. I don't even have it in front of me. Um, But with that said, thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you guys next time. Hopefully the Lakers have strung together a couple more wins, regardless of what happens tonight against the Miami Heat. So, uh, Tommy, I will let you go. Peace. Laters. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.